The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by Functional Ecology. The journal is published by the British Ecological Society, which is the largest ecological society in Europe with members from across the globe. The society envisions a world inspired, informed, and influenced by ecology. Functional Ecology publishes research that enables a mechanistic understanding of ecological pattern and process from the organismic to the ecosystem scale, asking the how and why questions in ecology. This season, we're partnering with Functional Ecology to highlight the research and scientists they publish. We work with journal editors to identify a topic that is perfect for big biology, and then we produce the episode with the same rigor as we would any other episode. On this episode, we're talking to Francis Champagne, a scientist at the University of Texas at Austin who studies the role of epigenetics in behavior. She recently published a paper in Functional Ecology on the interplay between maternal and paternal epigenetic effects in behavioral ecology. And that's the focus of this week's episode. Here's the show. Every cell in your body shares the same DNA. Yet amazingly, cells develop into different shapes, different sizes, and even different functions. How does the same genetic information lead to different cell types? One important force is epigenetic, factors that work above the genes to influence traits. Epigenetic processes such as DNA methylation and histonacellation affect the twisting of DNA's helical coils. The architecture of the genome literally affects which genes are turned on and off. The combination of these marks plays a huge role in determining how a cell develops. The term epigenetics was coined by the British biologist Conrad Waddington while studying fruit flies in the 1930s. When Waddington raised the temperature to levels that were stressfully high, some flies developed new wing vein patterns, a kind of plastic response to a new environment. Waddington then did an experiment in which he selected flies with the new wing vein patterns to be the parents of new flies. After several generations of breeding flies with this particular wing vein pattern, fly offspring started developing the same wing vein pattern as their parents, but without the heat. In other words, Waddington took a plastic trait and selected it to be genetically fixed, a phenomenon he called genetic assimilation. Since Waddington, scientists have started to ask whether epigenetic marks on the genome might facilitate assimilation or at least affect plasticity. Because cell differentiation is largely driven by epigenetic marks in most organisms, it's no surprise that lots of this plasticity arises through methylation and other epigenetic processes. What's exciting is that some of these marks appear heritable, but independent of the germline. In other words, in some cases, organisms might have multiple channels of inheritance, one that works exclusively through the genome, and another that's comprised of small molecules that influence how genes get regulated. If this is starting to sound a bit Lamarckian, it should. I think Lamarck's an interesting jumping point for thinking more broadly about inheritance. And certainly for me, it's really helped to actually go into the history of inheritance beliefs. And, um, you know, even Charles Darwin used pangenesis as a theories of inheritance, and we don't use that anymore. So people can be wrong, but can still be right on a number of points. Um, And uh, so I I don't, you know, I, I think the molecular biology has a lot to add in terms of challenging this kind of idea that there's only certain mechanisms that can convey information across generations. Um, But I'd like to see it integrated better together. That's Francis Champagne, a neuroscientist at the University of Texas at Austin, who studies how early life experiences affect epigenetic marks and how those marks are passed down through generations. Francis and her colleagues use rats to study epigenetic effects. It turns out that when rat moms spend a lot of time licking and cuddling their offspring, the methyl marks near one important gene tend to fall off. 
The absence of these marks then enables rat pups to regulate an important hormone involved in stress responses much more effectively. And the reverse happens too. If mom ignores her pups, they have lots of marks and also have trouble coping with stress when they grow up. But here's the kicker. These marks can sometimes be passed across generations. Scientists have found that several generations continue to show the behavior of their ancestors because of these epigenetic marks, even though the genome sequence itself never changed. The less obvious thing here, and the thing that makes these discoveries especially Lamarckian, is that epigenetic marks can be environmentally induced. For instance, moms lick and groom their pups when they don't have to find food or escape predators or compete with other parents. If they have to do these things a lot, her licking and grooming behavior could change, and that means that her genes, her epigenetic marks, and the conditions she experiences all combine to impact her daughter's behavior. On this episode, we talk with Francis about the effects of epigenetic marks, how they are passed down through generations, and what that tells us about evolution. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. This is Big Biology. So can you tell us about how your the, the, the research path that you went down led to what you're doing now? I mean, just in a nutshell, what are the sort of major few studies that your, your lab is focusing on? Yeah, so, you know, the early work in my dissertation was focused on mother-infant interactions. I'd say that still plays a very large part in my research because generally I'm interested in how early environments affect long-term behavioral outcomes and the way parents interact with their kids early on is a very big predictor of long-term outcomes. So it mm -hmm. tends to weave into almost everything I do. Um, but I really wanted to take it a little broader uh, from, uh, from just postnatal mother-infant interactions, thinking about the prenatal environment. So we've done studies in stress in rodents, studies in stress in humans that have both shown that the placenta um, has these epigenetic changes associated with stress, and that can predict uh, developmental and neurobiological outcomes in the offspring. Hmm. Then I moved into endocrine disruptors. So, for example, BPA and plastics. And, uh, and I think that was driven a lot by my interactions with the Columbia Center for Children's Environmental Health. And, and you know, that's what they've done. They've, that's what they've spent the last two decades doing is characterizing all of the negative effects of being exposed to a number of pollutants um, in the environment. And so I, I'd say that has a very strong um, influence on my current work because and integrating that with the social environment, I think, is pr probably the best descriptor of my of what I'm doing now is trying to integrate both physical and social environmental influences and how they induce epigenetic changes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I'd say the other thread is understanding how traits are passed across generations. And, mm -hmm. and when I was doing my PhD work, I was very meticulous, because I'd never worked with rodents before, I was like, I'm just going to write everything down, who beget who and who gave birth to, to what and where. And I, so I had these books and books of records of, of everyone's ancestry. And when we started looking at the data, it was very clear that there was these very consistent patterns of behavior over generations. And this is in a species where it's not, there's not enough genetic variation to really attribute it to genetic variation. And uh, we'd see that granddaughters would have the similar type of maternal phenotypes as their grandmothers, uh, unless you intervened and changed something about their environment. So hmm. thinking about how behavior can be passed across generations became kind of a central 
uh, part of the work, and then expanding that to fathers. Um, and I think a lot, certainly a lot has been studied in, in the terms of mother's influences, but there's growing work on father's influences and from both a kind of an epigenetic perspective and also a sociocultural perspective and thinking about how the changing role of human fathers in, in, in caregiving is. So in terms of, let's get a little bit into the details about how these things work for the unindoctrinated. Um, I mean, methylation and acetylation uh, of, of histones and such, it's all sort of changing the architecture of the genome, right, and making it more and less difficult for genes to be expressed. And that's where you're getting these sort of enduring changes in receptors and things that, that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Correct? So, you know, we we have all of this genetic information in our genomes, but for the most part, we want most of it shut off when we're not using it. And so mm -hmm. epigenetic modifications, including DNA methylation and histone modifications, work in concert with the DNA to make sure that genes are expressed when we need them to be expressed and shut off when we don't need them to be expressed. Earlier in the episode, we mentioned that epigenetic marks can be passed on to subsequent generations. But one of the puzzling things about this story is that the vast majority of these marks are erased before they can be passed on. Francis is studying the inheritance of the tiny fraction of marks that remain. Let's shift gears a little bit and go back to this, this resetting phenomenon. Um, you mentioned that you've become pretty interested in inheritance, but what, how, how does that happen? If by and large the whole system gets reset, where does this reestablishment come from and, and how sort of reliable are the marks when they're put back? Yeah. So that's, a, I'd say, still an open question. So when I started, started looking at maternal care and how it's transmitted, that's purely, in my view, a behavioral transmission. You experience maternal care that shapes the neural systems that regulate your own maternal care. And so you get this propagation over generations. Um, mm -hmm. The issue of inheritance, let's say, through the germ line of epigenetic changes is more challenging. Now, the literature on genomic imprinting suggests that genes can remember which parent they come from, which means despite erasure, there must be something, some tag that allows your, your genetic material that you receive from your parents to carry forward information based on what, whether you got it from your mother or your father. So though there is erasure, there's probably not complete erasure. And so I think that's where a lot of the emphasis of some of the inheritance of acquired epigenetic marks is, is focusing on is not the, you know, 99.9% .9 of the, the epigenetic marks that are erased, but the small uh, amount that are. And why are those mm -hmm. retained? Um, so some histones are retained and some DNA methylation marks are retained. But why are they retained? What genes are they retained? And how is how is that even possible? I mean, it, mm -hmm. I think it, there's, uh, there's a lot of erasure that has to go on. So to say that there's complete erasure, uh, especially, you know, I'd say in the 80s, the tools that that were used, we're looking at the level of chromatin. So it looked like at the level of chromatin that you pretty yeah, much got erasure. But when mm -hmm, you start mm -hmm. digging into the weeds of the actual gene sequence, you start realizing actually, you know, there's there's quite a lot of epigenetic marks carried forward. Mm. Is there anything sensible on the genes that 
are maintaining this these epigenetic sort of distinctions? Uh, I mean, any anything intelligible about what's not being reset? Yeah, I think that's still something that people are trying to explore. I mean, there are mm-hmm. there are genes that are a bit naughty and jump around, and that we want <laughs> to keep uh, you know a, a little bit of epigenetic control over. So those tend mm-hmm. to be ones that uh, carry the marks forward. I think there's increasing kind of bioinformatic study of of what's going on with these imprinted genes, what's special about them that allows them, and that hopefully can allow us to generalize to why other genes uh, that aren't necessarily imprinted can retain these epigenetic marks. So still, I I think, Mm -hmm. a a very open question. So so you said something a couple of minutes ago that... um... What's the phrase? I feel like I've had an epiphany, and I just want to—I want to lay this out, and, and we'll see. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just totally wrong here, but, but do we need dramatic? Uh, yeah, music I, or... I think we do. <laughs> so, so you said that there's a lot of erasure uh, of many of these marks, but that, for example, the the marks in a particular individual might influence their behavior, and then the behavior of that individual might influence the marks of the offspring. So, is that a way of saying that? the inheritance goes, you know, partly through the marks, but also partly through the behavior. Is that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. That is is super cool. And maybe this is. is. I think it's cool. I'd say, I'd say that paternal germline people don't think that's so cool. Well, they (laughs) should. They, and I think the reason is that everyone wants a pure Lamarckian type inheritance where things are propagated through the germline and it doesn't matter what you're exposed to and it's and what you're exposed to has no role in the in the transmission but that's not how life works right we have Mm -hmm. we have a germline but we have environments and both are working so that's been really Mm -hmm. my goal i'd say and especially in the last five years is trying to make the case that just looking at the germline and not thinking about anything else is going to be a very limiting way to think about inheritance. Okay. Hmm. Well, I think you've been saying this for a while, but I apparently just got it. And that is super cool. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, let's make it cooler. Uh, Francis, can you tell us some of your favorite examples of these enduring epigenetic effects and behavioral uh, sort of uh, epigenetic reciprocity yeah. in an inheritance context? Well, you know, I'd say one of the first studies that I came across that, you know, for a while I was like, well, you know, we have behavioral modes of transmission. Why do we need to be passing stuff through the germline? That doesn't make sense, right? Because mm-hmm. then it's there. And what if it's not adaptive? And behavior allows you to adapt uh, in a more dynamic way. Uh, but mm-hmm. then Isabel Mansui's lab started doing some studies where they were um, exposing male uh, mice to stress early on in life and then looking at epigenetic changes in the offspring of those males and the grand offspring of those males and then the sperm of those males and seeing that there's these epigenetic changes that are present both in the sperm and the brain of subsequent generations. And... I'd say that's where I started thinking, well, if, you know, the data are the data, if that's what's going on, then it's really interesting. I think it's, it's probably something that is 
um, very particular to species where the males have no interaction with the offspring, right? So this is their mm -hmm. only means of, of transmitting biological information. Um, so I think that started, you know, started me to think, okay, well, maybe this is something that's, that's going on. And, and I'd say then there have been a few studies on um, nutritional modulations and in males and how they affect subsequent generations. One study I think that was, was particularly interesting looked at uh, uh, dynamic social stress in juvenile males and how that would affect subsequent generations. And one feature of this design that was that was I thought very very fascinating was that the males would propagate effects across generations through the male germline so only the male males could pass on these effects but only the females were behaviorally affected so the the males didn't manifest any mm. behavioral changes their daughters did uh, and mm. their sons didn't but could pass on the information um, and that's actually become a very consistent theme in a lot of the inheritance literature where these experiential um, effects um, are transmitted down the male germline, uh, but not affecting the males particularly in, in any kind of behavioral way. But the females <laughs> are very behaviorally affected, but are not passing it through their own germline, although it's very difficult to figure out whether that would happen or not. And and from hmm. some sort of like, you know, inclusive fitness point of view, is there an evolutionary explanation for that, for, for, you know, what's going on in the males that affects the females? You know, I've never seen any sensible understanding of why that would be. Um, my view is that if the males had been very strongly behaviorally affected, it would probably eliminate them from the reproductive pool. I mean, females are not... Most females, especially in the wild, have a choice of which mates to mate with. So it's bad enough if the male has some germline epigenetic change, but if he's also behaviorally, you know, socially impaired or highly anxious, they I could see. use that phenotype to avoid mating with them entirely. So the only way mm. for getting the transmission is to make sure the males are not particularly affected phenotypically mm -hmm. um, in a way that it would affect mating dynamics. But, but for example, is there mm -hmm. evidence that the transmission of these marks by fathers to their daughters are adaptive for the daughters? You know, I haven't seen, there hasn't been much focus on adaptive changes. And, and, and I don't think, I think it's a bias in the way people um, design studies because a lot of the, the, especially the more expensive work is being funded by NIH and NIH is not a, you know, an agency studying why people right. are Basics healthy. Basics of evolution. It's, right. it's, it's studying why people are sick. And yeah. so there's a, a very strong emphasis mm -hmm. on pathology of these effects. But again, um, there's evidence, for example, that wound healing can be accelerated in the descendants of wounded parents or grandparents mm -hmm. that, um, uh, cocaine aversion can be induced in the grand, you know, grand offspring of grandparents who were exposed to cocaine. Hmm. Those could be seen as adaptive phenotypes, but um, because we're not testing phenotypic outcomes in uh, in a context where we could look at adaptation, it's hard. It's really hard to say. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Are there any examples in the sort of um, biomedical context that? people feel reasonably confident might be evidence of sort of adaptive outcomes? I, I don't, I would say no, because I think, you know, 
depending on whether it suits you or not, you frame it as an adaptation or not, but it's not, <laughs> sure. you know, it's not really, you know, it could be adaptive. It could be harmful. It really depends on the context of the organism. Now, lab-based yeah. studies are just not well designed for that because normally you're testing under very constrained conditions. You're not forcing mm-hmm. animals out into the wild and say, okay, you're in a nutrient, you know, you're in a high predation risk environment. Uh, let's see mm-hmm. how you do. Um, it's mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. that's not really the model. Um, um, right. I think we'll have better luck from from proper behavioral ecologists going out into the wild and studying how the epigenetic changes they observe influence survival and reproduction. What's the um, something that you said, and maybe we should have touched on this this earlier, but what's the record right now for how long these marks can last? And I know there's so much diversity in the marks, it's almost a, a silly question. But if once they get set, I mean, are we talking three, four, five, ten generations? So I think I think the there's no real set rule. I, I think they've been observed mm-hmm. up to five generations. Uh, it is actually very challenging to do multi-generational studies in any kind of species that lives longer than a few days. So. Yeah. <laughs> and expensive. And expensive. Fruit flies. <laughs> and again, because this is not, uh, it's still, everything is always subject to environmental uh, dysregulation. And so you have to maintain mm-hmm. within your five generations very high stability of environmental conditions. And, you know, I remember when mm-hmm. st- starting at Columbia University and starting my lab there, um, you know, the fire, they test the fire alarms every month. <laughs> I said, don't, please, <laughs> please don't do that in the animal rooms because this is a really <laughs> horrible 90 decibel noise and we're trying to do multi-generational studies. So, so they stop at yeah. the fire alarms, but again, there's a lot of things you can't control even in a yeah, lab yeah. Uh, in terms of humidity and temperature and noise and all, you know, coming and going of, of various people. Um, so I think, you know, these, these mechanisms are constantly under pressure to shift in their form. So I think you could get rid of it in a generation. It could stick around for a few generations. I think it's all dependent on what exposures the organism has. And if the epigenetic mark is in any way a maladaptive for reproduction, it's going to be gone pretty soon because the, there's right. no generations to, to, to create. Right. Yeah. And as far as, you know, there, there is a relationship between epigenetic mechanism and phenotypic plasticity, there's a pretty large literature out there in the evolutionary world about the sort of value in, you know, the timescales over which ep- uh, environmental variation happens. And in certain places, the unlikely situation that environmental conditions are enduring. So, right. I mean, you could make an argument. What I'm saying is you could make an argument that these marks could last long periods of time, but there's a similar argument to be made that in general, they should be wiped clean really quickly. Otherwise, you're producing offspring that just don't fit that That's environmental right. change. That's right. So, happens. and, and yeah. you know, with the mice, uh, their, they, their turnover is very quick. And so the reproductive context of the offspring is going to be pretty similar to that of their parents. Mm-hmm. Humans, not mm-hmm. so much, right? The, the, so much, the yeah. world we mm-hmm. live in now is very different from the world I grew up in. So, um, mm-hmm. so there's no strong advantage to having this baggage carrying around with you. Mm-hmm. 
Has that been systematically studied? I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, the size or the life history of organisms and generally whether they're more or less labile with regard to epigenetic mm. variation? I don't think there's been a comprehensive study um, to really delve mm-hmm. into that. I w- there's probably not much elephant epigenetics in general, <laughs> though, right? No. Very so, long-term study. Yeah. So, well, I mean, the thing is to, to really um, to look at epigenetics um, comparatively you have to account for genetic variation, right? So if there's just more Mm -hmm. cytosines in a genome, there's going to be more methylation. And so you have to find Mm -hmm. some very clever way to compare across species um, and control for genetic makeup when you're comparing plasticity of of the DNA methylation state. Mm -hmm. You also, from a very practical standpoint, you you need to know very good, you need to have very good sequence data from an organism in order to look at DNA methylation. So I got a phone call once from a zoo saying, you know, we'd like, we'd like to look at the epigenetic um, uh, data in our pandas um, that we have. And I was like, well, great, but what do we, you know, what am I going to compare it to? So I, you know, and again, yeah. so you need, you, it works well in humans because we know the genome sequence in humans, but even mm-hmm. so, uh, SNPs and genetic polymorphisms call all, cause all sorts of trouble for profiling DNA yeah. methylation. Uh, the same with mice. We have lots of tools, but yet beyond there, it's really you have to DIY it when it comes to the to the protocols. Well, I think we should turn to the functional ecology paper, Marty. Is it a good time for that? Functional ecology yeah. paper. Yeah, that's a that's okay. a good idea. So, um, the title of this paper in functional ecology it is it is a mouthful. <laughs> um, the interplay between paternal germline and maternal effects in shaping development: colon, the overlooked importance of behavioral ecology. So, can you explain your explain your basic motivation for the paper, and you know what was it that the field was missing that that drove you to write this? Paper. Yeah, so I had been working with uh, a few uh, people from behavioral ecology who were really interested in epigenetics and thinking of um, in, in, uh, kind of an, in, an idea of inclusive inheritance, thinking about the fact that there are not just there's not just one way to inherit information, uh, but there are other ways and that they interact. So I started working with them many years ago on on, on kind of conveying this. One of the big contributions I had to that was thinking about epigenetic inheritance, which I think is really been exclusively studied in the paternal germline. And that's where I think a lot of the the data are coming out from various animal models. And um, because, again, I'm coming from a background where I'm interested in mothers and what mothers do, and I know how important maternal care is to offspring development. Um, And then then diving into this world of paternal germline effects, where every effort, you know, in a in a well designed study of paternal germline effects, you control everything. You take away the, you take away the influence of the mothers, and you take away this, and then you just study the pure effect of whatever's acquired in the father's sperm and how that affects subsequent generations. So that's all well and good. So I, I you know, I believe from the from the studies that there is something being transmitted via the fathers, via the sperm that can influence the next generation. The problem is in the real world, <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> there's a mother and a father and there's an offspring and they're all dynamically interacting. Um, and so mm-hmm. while in the lab 
the lab studies suggest that it's possible for this to occur. It doesn't suggest that that's the only mechanism or the only way we should think about this when we're thinking about how animals actually transmit traits across generations. So we had, um, back many years ago now, we had been interested in transgenerational studies and had been looking at how father's exposure to different social environments would affect their offspring and grand offspring. Because we always do, we measured maternal care in these studies. And we found that if the fathers had been exposed to uh, social isolation, so a stressor, then the mothers would change the way they care for the offspring. And this is hmm. an mating system where the fathers aren't partaking in the caregiving, right? So they, they mate and then they're mm -hmm. removed and the mothers give birth and they're the sole caregivers of the offspring. Uh, but there's a, a paternal influence on how mothers care for their offspring. So um, mm -hmm. the, all these exposures that people are using in paternal germline studies are affecting the characteristics of the males. And that's affecting something about the mating dynamics of the males with the female. And that's affecting her own caregiving activities. <laughs> so wow. we, we felt it was really important for you know, people to kind of embrace the idea that actually there's much more going on than just these paternal germline effects, that they could be augmented by what's going on with the mothers. But there's been a lot of resistance to that. And I think, again, um, no one wants to sit around watching mothers interact with their offspring for weeks and weeks on end. <laughs> um, they just want to get at their kind of key molecular pathway. Um, but, you know, reality, studying real biological systems is challenging. And so you should try and do, do your best. So we, we did more studies showing that food restriction of fathers affected the way the mothers behaved towards their offspring. And then we dug a little deeper. And in fact, the, there was changes in the placental gene expression and changes in the gene expression in the mom's brain, depending on what kind of male she had mated with. And then awesome. we did some more studies where we um, we manipulated the, the mating experience of the mother. So we made them think that they'd been impregnated by a male that wasn't stressed. And then we implanted them with the embryo of, uh, of generated by a male that had been stressed. When we when we when we fake them out in terms of their mating experience, they don't make these adjustments. So it's something about actually interacting with a stressed male that's no important for this, hmm. this change in maternal behavior. And if they don't do that, then you do see these strong paternal effects on their offspring. If they huh. augment hmm. their maternal care, they increase their, the, how much nursing and licking they provide to the offspring, then, uh, then you see this change in the expression of the paternal effects in the offspring. Wow. So, hmm. so that was fun because, you know, then we started thinking, oh, well, what if we could convince, you know, the females that they'd mated with a stress male? What would that mean for their offspring and so on? So those are a few different angles mm -hmm. that we're working on. But yeah, that gave us kind of the... elaborate. The, yeah, and it gave us kind of the... I think the evidence we needed to really say to people, actually, you know, there's <laughs> there's a whole world of behavioral ecology. There's a whole world of reproductive yeah. biology that you really have to factor mm -hmm. into your studies on paternal germline effects. And so, the behavioral uh, the 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 article um, that we wrote for functional ecology was really trying to tease out, you know, hey, here are some other th ways of thinking about paternal germline effects and and what may be 
the root of their their influence. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, hmm. So there's one thing I wasn't clear on, which is so if if a female mates with a stressed male, then how does that affect her care of the offspring? She she gives them more care, more licking and grooming. That's right. So yeah. in behavioral ecology, there's two ways it can go. Right. So you have. Um, uh, behavioral compensation, which is what we're seeing when we food restrict and stress out the males, right? The females engage in more maternal care. The idea of that is that females know that they've kind of not gotten the best mate, um, but they want their offspring to develop optimally. Oh, so they're providing extra care to offset the the p- potential um, uh, detractions that their their yeah. p- their mate had um, imposed. Um, it can also go the other way, and we've seen both both strategies used where the females, when they're mated with a, a socially enriched male that's very low stress, they actually engage in a lot more maternal behavior in those cases. So huh. sometimes they can compensate, sometimes they adjust in, in other ways. I see. And and you so so if we sort of set aside the placental effects, so mm-hmm. what what exactly are the females paying attention to during these mating interactions that tell them whether the male is stressed or not? Yeah, so that's a good question and one that we're really trying to explore now. So uh, we haven't seen anything overt in terms of the behavioral dynamics of of the males and females. There's certain differences in how much contact they have with each other, but you know it's hard with mice. You can't really ask them what. <laughs> Right, yeah, what right. the, what's going hey, what on do you with think you? of this male? What do you what like do you about that guy? guy? Yeah. We know that they 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 can tell a difference, and they can tell a difference just based on olfaction. So if you take the urine from a stressed mm. male, the females will not go near it. They don't. They, it's not their preferred social stimuli uh, compared to the male, the urine of a non-stressed uh, male. So hmm. there's something that they can detect probably from sensory interactions about the state of the male. Um, but there might be other things as well, um, auditory signals, behavioral signals that this male's under a lot of stress. And even, you know, in a lot of species, there's this idea of kind of a stress contagion. So, you know, if I'm stressed and I'm around you, you will become stressed. And there's probably direct transfer of, of stress hormone, but you're also picking up on a lot of different behavioral right. cues. So as social well. cues, I should be stressed. Yeah, I mean, exactly. stressed. <laughs> <laughs> Francis, it probably makes the experiments um, just overwhelmingly difficult and complex. But I have to ask if you have or if you plan to sort of change the conditions of the females and check whether there's some break point where moms will no longer compensate for bad choice of dad or no choice of dad, yeah, but he's stressed I, or something I, I like think that. There probably is a breaking point. Um, you know, mm-hmm. not in these kind of studies, but we, I've, some colleagues have looked at um, biparental species. And if you increase the demand, that uh, the work demand that it takes to get food, um, how long will it take before they just give up and they can't really mm-hmm. take on that? So there's probably some, there's, there's a maximum amount of energy any, any person mm-hmm. has, certainly any mother has, right? So there, yeah, there's yeah. limits to how much she can invest without compromising her own health. So there will be, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There will be a top. I, I think it would be interesting to look at how her own life history affects the decisions made in terms of whether she invests more care or less care. So theoretically, mm-hmm. older, older females should be less likely to withhold resources to their offspring because they have fewer reproductive opportunities in future. So an older female mm-hmm. should go all out, and even if the male's really stressed, to invest as much energy in the offspring to optimize their development as she can. 
younger mm-hmm. females may be more likely to withhold resources and wait for a better guy to come along and mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and and invest in those offspring. Hmm. Do, do yep. females adjust litter size in in mice also in response to these? Like you know, you could imagine that if they're anticipating giving lots of maternal care to offspring from a stressed male, maybe they have fewer of them so that they can do that. Yeah, we haven't actually looked at that. I mean, uh, stressed females tend to have smaller litter sizes. Um, mm. We've just actually found in humans uh, that. Stressed human mothers are less likely to give birth to males. Um, so they do, there are some early kind of adjustments that are made in, in the reproductive dynamics that will determine the characteristics and the number of offspring. But we haven't, we haven't really investigated too much with regard to father's effects on mm-hmm. that. And that human example you just gave is, is, do you have a proposed adaptive value for you know why? Why not have male offspring when you're stressed? <laughs> I you know there. There's been a few epidemiological studies to also support this. Uh, this effect. Males are very costly um, as as offspring, and in fact, I think there's some really interesting epidemiological work that suggests that for every male you give birth to, it takes about a decade off your lifespan. <laughs> so, Ouch. Oh, my wife. Yeah. We have two boys. My wife won't want to hear that. No, we, I, have, so, I have twin boys too. No. Yeah. So, and and there's there's probably biological reasons for that. Having a Y chromosome in a body that's not used to having a Y chromosome in it. It probably initiates a lot of kind of immune reactions that um, might mm-hmm. not be optimal for female health. So males are very costly, and they're actually they need a lot more investment of maternal resources. So females, you can get away with less resources. So that's probably what happens. Yeah, and and in terms of maybe mice and humans, are we talking about five or ten percent more resources, or like? doubling of resources? It's hard to or quantify. It... It's hard to quantify. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, you know, ask a mother. I think they'll all have different yeah. opinions. On yeah, this, yeah, for sure. Everyone right. I've I'll call talked my mom after has, this episode. Yeah. Boys, everyone <laughs> I've spoken to, boys are very costly and that doesn't end at birth. <laughs> yeah, no. maybe start pulling back. Uh, Francis Art calls it the 30,000 feet view. So let's try to scale uh, as broadly as we possibly can. And I'm not going to take the full step to 30,000 initially. <laughs> um, it's, it's just too abrupt for me. Um, why, what do you think the work that's done in the lab, especially about questions like this, you talking about the differences in sort of the life histories of females, old versus young, and how they might adjust their behavior with respect to dad's experiences, what does so much epigenetics work in the lab mean for understanding how it operates and how it evolved in nature? I mean, how, how are we supposed to connect the dots between those two very different approaches? Yeah, I think I think it's challenging. I think what the lab work has helped do is to um, promote uh, method development um, in in conditions where things are controlled, where you can get the sequence data, where you can get things in a um, optimize the techniques. Uh, but I would say there's a real move towards making the world of the lab a lot more naturalistic. So, you know, and, and this is something that I've come across in human work as well, right? So we, we do 
studies of, of institutionally reared children, for example, where they're having very, very low social interaction early on, very low social complexity early on. And we know that their brains are much different than individuals who've had kind of a socially rich environment. If you translate that to rodent studies or any kind of animal study where they're in the lab, the lab is a very impoverished environment. And we drive so much of what we think about the basic processes of biology, the basic process of neuroscience based on these extremely impoverished animals um, and try to extrapolate that broadly. So I think there's concern over continuing to do that because that's probably mm -hmm. not the right strategy for understanding um, how people are behaving and functioning out in the real world. So there's more and more push towards now taking the lab and making it a little bit more naturalistic, using complex rearing designs, using complex environments where in, you know animals can form social groups and social hierarchies, and then seeing how all of these factors play out. So I think that's helping bringing the lab a little closer to what's going out in the world. I think another um, change that is probably important is to... Um, put more kind of contextual variables in the assessment of, of outcomes, right? So an outcome has a meaning, but that meaning is dependent on what context that organism is being tested mm -hmm. in. But we tend to standardize mm -hmm. and test everyone in the same context. Um, mm -hmm. And so if we go back to my, uh, you know, my PhD work looking at maternal care and how it affects rats um, and their stress and their maternal behavior, rats that get a lot of a lot of maternal care early on, they tend to do better on cognitive tasks when they're adults under standard laboratory conditions. But if you increase the stress level of the test, the offspring that do better are the offspring who've had stressful early life experiences, mm -hmm. the ones that didn't get all that maternal care early on in life. So you can get very mm -hmm. different results depending on the contextual factors uh, surrounding the time that you're assessing outcomes. So I think more and mm -hmm. more there's attention to that and trying to recapitulate what's out there in the real world to the lab environment so you can make the work more mm -hmm. relevant. Yeah, neat. It's going to be, there eventually will come a barrier where we'll aspire to more naturalism, but I can't envision a scenario where we start introducing predators and infections and things into our colonies <laughs> to simulate nature. Sure. I mean, so because that can't happen, can you have people started to think about the sort of hierarchy of factors that are most necessary to try to account for or most telling in terms of relevance to humans? I think um, I think recapitulating better the social complexity of rearing environments and social living, group living environments is probably one of the keys, right? So just studying mm -hmm. animals that are living in isolation, I mean, that wouldn't be... That wouldn't be considered an appropriate choice in humans if we based everything right, right. we knew about human health on on children that had never engaged in any kind of complex social interaction. So I think that's going to be key. Mm -hmm. um, and you're seeing that change, I think, you know, for example, with primates, um, there's a lot less focus on these kind of lab-based studies and more on field work studies or field station studies mm -hmm. where they can interact in complex groups. So I think that will probably mm -hmm. be the most important. Um, 
it's it's not easy though, right? So you know the whole setup of of lab based facilities is control of everything, <laughs> mm-hmm. and when you have individuals <laughs> forming social groups and living in these complex environments, that's going to detract from that. But I think that's probably one of the most important. I think you can put in pressures. You know, we you can't bring a predator in the in the lab, but you can bring fox odor if you're doing uh, work with rodents, and that's pretty mm-hmm. effective right. stressor. Um, people who do fish, they they can make little models of pikes that come along and are as a predatory <laughs> fish. So there's a lot of interest, I think, in trying to figure out what it, what is in the lab that's most meaningful or in the wild that's most meaningful for yeah. these. And how do you um, translate individuals. that into lab? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Neat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me ask another broad question, which is about um, how, how you view epigenetics role in just sort of basic evolutionary theory. And um, Marty and I have talked to a number of people on on our show about um, the modern synthesis and and whether the sort of basic evolutionary theory that that modern synthesis lays out needs updating in relation to sort of things that have been discovered over the last ten or twenty years. Things like uh, you know the profound roles of plasticity or things like ecological inheritance. So, you know, from your point of view, do you think we need to update evolutionary theory based on what we know about epigenetics? Depends on who I'm talking to, because people get get quite agitated about about it. Kevin Leyland has a nice review paper that talks about this very topic. How do we take epigenetic inheritance? How do we take other... Uh, our increased understanding of plasticity and incorporate into modern synthesis and create testable ideas. It's fine to have all these theoretical positions, but what does this mean and how do we test it um, in various uh, experimental designs? I mean, I, in some ways, I'm agnostic about you know whether this should be an important feature of evolution. I think certainly the evolution of genes uh, that allow for plastic plasticity is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, these are short-term dynamic effects that may persist over a few generations, but probably not really designed to do more than that. Um, I think it's possible they could transition into genomic effects over time, especially if there's consistent pressures from the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in and of themselves, I mean, I think it, I think it's hard because the whole framework of modern synthesis, the whole framework of evolution is on the stability um, mm-hmm. and this kind of not, not a plasticity model, but a, a, a stability and an inheritance of that stability. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, mm. I, you know, I, I don't get, I don't get into arguments with people about it because yeah, fair, I don't know enough. that it's, it's worth, worth it, but I think it's worth thinking about um, and challenging how we think about evolution and whether this could play a role, but I have no vested interest in it playing a role. Uh-huh. Sure. How do you, to try to put a sharper point on this, how do you, how do you think that the molecular epigenetic work that's going on now relates to Lamarck's ideas or you know those that are attributed to him about evolution of acquired characteristics? Yeah, I think you know I so I teach a course on inheritance where we talk a lot about Lamarck's theories and you know I'd say none of what we do is a very good test of Lamarckian theory because Lamarckian theory depends on. Uh, two important things that tend to be missing from these studies. First, that the the pressure is consistent over multiple generations. So, you know, you can't just do a one-off, oh, I'm going to stress this male, and if it doesn't 
transmit 10 generations, then there's no Lamarckian inheritance. You need the constant pressure. And you also mm -hmm. need the response to that pressure to be adaptive for the organism. And those are two elements that tend to be missing from a lot of a lot of the studies we do on on the molecular biology. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I think Lamarck's an interesting jumping point for thinking more broadly about inheritance. And certainly for me, it's really helped to actually go into the history of inheritance beliefs. And, um, you know, even Charles Darwin used pangenesis as a theories of inheritance, and we don't use that anymore. So mm -hmm, people can be mm -hmm. wrong, but can still be right mm -hmm. on, on a number of points. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't, you know, I, I think the molecular biology has a lot to add in terms of challenging this kind of idea that there's only certain mechanisms that can convey information across generations. Um, but mm -hmm. I'd like to see it integrated better together. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to be able to sort of get at this Lamarckian, uh, versions of Lamarckian inheritance via epigenetics, if such things exist and are important in natural systems or the technical hurdles and the, you know, the need to know so many things that really maybe it's not that they can only be known in the lab, but they're sure as hell much easier known in the lab. I mean, will we eventually get there? I think it'll be challenging. I think uh, in the lab, you can do all sorts of crazy things, right? You can create organisms that only have fathers or only have mothers based on biological information, but you can't do that in the wild. It doesn't happen, right? So <laughs> it's, all, yeah. it's all fun as an experiment, but it's not the real world. I think that um, for the purists, if the if the information is not inherited in a way that's very very stable, then it's not Lamarckian. So I think mm -hmm. epigenetics would never pass muster for anyone who's who's a who's a, a purist when it comes to what mm -hmm. Lamarck would have been describing. And again, he was trying to describe speciation and things like that, which is not dependent, you know, on epigenetics right. per se. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I think it will be challenging in the wild. And I don't think epigenetic changes, because they're reversible, are not going to be sustained over multiple generations, especially if they are not adaptive. If they are adaptive, they'll probably become genetic changes because that will give that organism an advantage and it doesn't have to constantly reestablish or maintain epigenetic marks. So. I think mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. you won't see it as a, only as a transitionary state um, in something that could be longer lasting. Well, I think we ought to transition now into some sort of wrap up questions. Is that all right with you, Marty? Yeah, that sounds uh, good. Okay, great. Um, we wanted to ask about um, just sort of where you're going in the next few years. So what, what's your next major study or set of studies? And, you know, what do you see your lab doing in the next five years? Yeah, so I, I really like to keep things really broad, have, have a lot of different types of studies going on. So we still do some animal studies in the lab. Uh, particularly when we're interested in exploring causal relationships between environments and outcomes. Uh, but I'd say the big transition now is to move to a lot more human studies. And I think we're we're at a point where I feel like there's the the techniques are there to study epigenetics in humans. Um, we can 
study environments in, in humans using technology in ways that we couldn't before. Um, and so it gives a much more satisfying kind of way of studying people out in, in their normal environments in the and wild. living their lives. <laughs> people in the wild. Um, with potential benefits for health, right? So um, a lot of what I'm doing now is focused on trying to understand how we can better characterize the environment, both the physical and the social environment of humans, how we can look at the relationship to that and their epigenome. Another area is looking at epigenetic aging, which is becoming very, very popular in the, in the human and animal literature, and trying to understand how can we turn back the clock in terms of epigenetic aging um, in, in humans. So this is something that's, that's really been a focus recently. Hmm. Uh, question, is, is there much effort or are you having any plans yourself to, to look at genetic variation and epigenetic variation among humans? Um, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Wow. It's a, it's a multi-level yeah, that's, variation. That's, that's good, to, good stuff, right? Yeah. So this is the thing when you you go into the wild to humans, they have genetic mm -hmm. variation and you have to control yeah. for it at the very least or look at the interplay. And so we definitely do and think it's important. But, you know, I think we still I think there's still a struggle in the field to figure out how to best integrate these two massive sets of data. Right. You have yeah. genome wide sequence data, you have methylation data, how do you make sense of the two? So that's that's something we're, we struggle with, I think everyone struggles with, but something that we're, we're trying to take on as a challenge. Mm -hmm. Okay, so last question, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Any other message you want to leave listeners with with regard to epigenetics or Lamarck or neuroscience or anything? Yeah, I would just say that I think one one pathway that's led this field to really evolve quickly over time is people being open to kind of nonsense ideas that that <laughs> that seemed really ridiculous but why don't try it and i think i think that's helped us a lot in the field i think people have become much more open minded about the types of things that are possible and throwing away kind of some of the dogmas that seemed were probably good ideas at the time. I think it's probably good that we didn't pursue Lamarckian inheritance as the main mechanism of inheritance early on. I think it would have been confusing in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's nice to be open to change, and especially when new techniques come, come, uh, come around. And so I think that's mm -hmm. something that... I think has helped the field, helps all of the fields, is just to be open-minded about how complex biology is. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. If you like the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes. You can also support the show by becoming a patron. Patrons get access to exclusive content like extra interviews and show notes for each episode. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash bigbio. On the next episode of Big Biology, we switch from epigenetics back to genetics. We're talking to some scientists from 23andMe who tell Marty and me about our genetic ancestry and what our genes can say about our ability to carry a tune and taste cilantro. They take your DNA, they chop it up to pieces, they amplify it so you have a lot, and then they apply it to a genotyping chip. Yes. so that we can test for about 600,000 places in the genome. Um, and we're looking for basically locations where we know there are differences between people, so we call those genetic variants or DNA variants. Yeah, and so we get that 
raw data, those those SNPs back from the lab, and then we use that, as Ruth said, to generate reports for people, whether they're health reports or um, reports about your traits or your ancestry. Thanks to Matt Bloys for producing the episode. Chloe Ramsey manages our social media channels. Mike Levine helps with Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear.